Welcome to Matthewlinity, critical study of Matthew and masculinity. In this series, I'll be navigating the world of Matthewan research by identifying assumptions, connecting old and new interpretations, including questions and perspectives previously overlooked or undervalued. There's a whole world of research that awaits. Are you ready? Hello, welcome to episode 2. In this episode, I'll be commenting on the first verse of Matthew, which consists only of nouns. It's such an unusual little verse that first I'll be spending a few minutes talking about what kind of a verse it is, before I get to reading it out in Greek. I'll be exploring various questions, particularly the ambiguous nature of the first pair of words and the last pair of words, noting how the significance of both pairs of words is usually upstaged by the second and third pairs of words. In some interpretations, the whole of verse 1 is minimised by the next 16 verses of the genealogy, as if verse 1 is merely a heading for the genealogy. And so the main debate I'll be discussing is whether verse 1 is a heading for the whole book. There are many other questions raised, and a few answers suggested. What if we were to discover the original book title of Matthew? It doesn't appear to have a very interesting book title in English Bibles. It just has the traditional book title, which I discussed in the previous episode. But what if we were to discover the original book title and discovered that it was quite interesting? The book of Matthew tells the story of the life and significance of Jesus and his teachings. But it doesn't have a very catchy book title in English Bibles. What if the book had a better title, something, perhaps something simple, like The Story of the Life of Jesus? And what if it had a good subtitle to go with it, something like The Chosen One, the new Davidic Abrahamic leader of his people? Actually, that's quite possibly what verse 1 meant although you might not notice this by reading it in English Bibles, but the first verse was possibly a heading for the entire book, which means we should probably read it as the original title of the book. And that's the main point of this episode, which follows nicely from last episode. If you remember in the previous episode, I spent most of the time interpreting the traditional title of the book, Gospel According to Matthew. And I concluded that it was not the original title of the book. It was a later edition from the middle of the next century, when the books of the Gospel were named as a group. One thing I didn't discuss last time was this gap in between when the book's written and the, name, the official name of the book. It seems like quite a long time for the book to go without a, an official title. Well, today's episode provides an answer to this question. Basically, it's because books at that time did not need an additional book title, because books at that time already had a built-in book title. Every ancient book already had a title built into the book. This built-in book title was simply the beginning of the book. The first word or first few words of the book functioned to identify the book. This handy built-in book title worked for two reasons. It worked because most books did not begin in exactly the same way, 
so the opening words were usually enough to identify the book. And it worked because most ancient books began by immediately introducing their topic, right within their opening lines. Jewish Bibles still use the opening words of a book as a book title. Even when we might not think of these words as an adequate book title, for example, the first book of the Hebrew Bible is called Bereshith, which means in beginning of, or in the beginning. The technical term for a book's first words is insipid, or compositional insipid. That is, the initial words of a composition. The insipid of the book of Matthew would include at least the first two words, and here we immediately enter into the first major debate. What does the first pair of words mean in the Gospel of Matthew? The first two words of Matthew talk about a book of Genesis. Biblos Genesios, a book of Genesis of Jesus. What does that mean? Is it a Genesis of Jesus in terms of the life produced, Jesus' life? the book of the life of Jesus? Or, as most English Bibles put it, is it a record of the genealogy of Jesus, referring only to the following 16 verses? There are two extreme positions in the debate. There are also numerous positions between these two extremes. The debate is connected to the whole question of what kind of a heading is verse 1. In order to appreciate the nature of the debate, I'll be needing to talk about why there are no English Bibles that treat verse 1 as a heading for the whole book, especially since more and more scholars are arguing that verse 1 functions as the heading for the whole book, as the book's title. Actually, a recent Bible translation called the International Standard Version, they have chosen to translate it as record of the life of Jesus. Another debate concerns the last pair of words in verse 1, which refer to Abraham's son, Uyu Avraham. And the problem is trying to determine what kind of label this is. What kind of descriptor is it meant to be? The answer partly depends on how it's related to the previous pair of words, Uyu David, son of David. Are the third pair of words and the fourth pair of words meant to be genealogical labels? or messianic labels, or typological labels. Different answers affect the interpretation of the verse. The various debates and interpretations I'll be looking at here are all interrelated. What kind of a heading, what kind of genesis, what kind of label is son of? How we answer one of these questions depends on how we answer the other two questions. This might seem overly complicated and entwined, but there's a more positive way of looking at it. If we can solve one of these mysteries, perhaps it might help us solve the other mysteries in verse 1. Okay, let's look at verse 1 in Greek. Vivlos Gnesios Yesu Christu, Wiyu David, Wiyu Abraham, Book of Genesis, of Jesus Christos, of Son of David, of Son of Abraham. 
each Greek word after the first word, after viblos, has the genitive case ending, which is why we add the word of in English. That is, there's seven possessive nouns each word attaches to the previous word. Each successive noun possesses the previous noun. Notice the whole verse consists only of nouns. Eight nouns. What kind of sentence has no verb and only nouns? Apparently, it's some kind of heading. Scholars agree that it's a heading of some sort. These eight nouns are in doubles or pairs. So we have four pairs of nouns. Almost no English Bibles translate the first word pair as Book of Genesis. I say almost because there are a few Bible commentaries that translate it as Book of Genesis. I remember the first time I read the first verse of Matthew in Greek, I was surprised that Book of Genesis of Jesus was obscured in English translation. Why had none of the English Bibles I had read, why had none of them translated it as Book of Genesis of Jesus? Instead, almost all English Bibles have Record of Genealogy. Don't get me wrong, there are a few good reasons to translate it that way. But there are also good reasons for translating it as Book of Genesis of Jesus or Book of the Life of Jesus. Among scholars, the debate is about what kind of genesis of Jesus is meant. And the debate is almost identical to the debate about what kind of heading is verse 1. Is it a heading for only the first few verses, the first 16 verses? Or is it a heading for the whole book? Or is it perhaps a heading for something in between this, perhaps the first few chapters, the first two or three chapters? The fact that these two debates are parallel, they're basically the same debate. They've got the same questions and answers for these two debates. This is not a coincidence. It's really showing us that the meaning of the word Genesis is determining the meaning of the debate about the meaning of the verse. What's the meaning of verse 1? This parallels what's the meaning of, of the kind of Genesis of Jesus. What this shows us is that the meaning of the second word, Genesis, is basically determining the nature of the meaning of verse 1. So if we say Genesis applies just to a little bit, just to the genealogy in the next few verses, then we're saying that the whole of verse 1 applies just to the genealogy. If we say that Genesis applies to the whole book, then that's determining that the heading also applies to the whole book. In order to discuss the whole verse, I'll be needing to focus on why English Bibles choose to go with such a minimal interpretation of verse 1, why they don't treat it as a heading for the whole book. And this is a good way for us to understand why a minimalist interpretation is a good place to start, because understanding the minimal interpretation helps us to identify the main issues of interpretation. The maximal interpretation is the idea that it's a heading for the whole book. So some scholars say it is a heading for the whole book. Some scholars say that verse 1 is a heading for the first few chapters. Some scholars argue that verse 1 is a heading for the first two chapters, dealing with Jesus' infancy. Some scholars argue that verse 1 is only a heading for the first chapter. 
And a few scholars argue that verse 1 is only heading for the first 16 verses, the genealogy. That's what I'm calling the minimal interpretation. However, when we look at what's going on in the English Bibles, it's the other way around. Basically, all English Bibles are following the minimal interpretation. What's going on? There are a few different reasons why translators prefer the minimal reading. One reason is it's become the traditional reading. It never used to be the traditional interpretation. Before this, the traditional reading was Book of Generation, the Book of Generation of Jesus, as in that which is generated, someone's origination. Another reason translators prefer genealogy of Jesus instead of Genesis of Jesus or Book of the Life of Jesus is because translators don't really need verse 1 as a book title. They already have the traditional book title. The traditional book title, Gospel According to Matthew, makes another title unnecessary. Translators don't need another title for the book. And this raises the question, which form of the text are we translating? So translators are translating the traditional title as part of a later text from the 2nd century or 3rd century or later. But this can obscure verse 1 if verse 1 is intended to be the book's original title. We need to be compassionate to translators here. Usually when we try and interpret the meaning of a verse, we have other verses previous in which to help interpret it. But in this case, there's nothing, there's nothing previous to verse 1, except for the traditional title. So there are no previous verses in the book. It seems we can interpret verse 1 only in relation to the following verses, because in this case, the only previous verses are verses from older books of Scripture. Perhaps this is why Matthew begins with a heading that evokes the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Or perhaps this is why churches chose to put the book of Matthew first in the New Testament, because the book keeps referring back to older scriptures. Perhaps book of Genesis of Jesus is a way of evoking the name of the book of Genesis. The first book of the Bible was called Genesis according to its Greek name. In other words, book of Genesis of Jesus is intended to echo the Greek name of the book of Genesis. Another suggestion is that book of Genesis of Jesus is intended to echo the heading in Genesis chapter 5 verse 1, which introduces the genealogical account of Adam's descendants. In the Greek version, it shares the same vocabulary as our verse, saying this is the book of Genesis of humans. It's unfair to all the Bible translators to simply say that none of them bothered to consider whether the first two words in Matthew were intended to sound like a recollection of the name of the first book of Jewish scripture. Translators know what it sounds like. They know that it seems like Matthew is echoing or alluding to the book of Genesis, whether the name of the book or whether the genealogical account of the first human's descendants now the question is, why do most translations choose to bypass this illusion? Why do they minimise this echo? That's a good question, and that's why I'm here to try to explain it. As a heading, we don't know exactly what verse 1 means until we know what it applies to. 
we should be aware here of entering into what's called a hermeneutical circle, a cycle of interpretation where the meaning of a verse is discovered by discovering the meaning of its immediate context, and vice versa. Understanding the meaning of the verse helps us to understand the meaning of the context, which then helps us to understand the meaning of the verse by going back and forth between verse and context. But in the case of verse 1, the hermeneutical circle seems to have come to a standstill. There's not much movement anymore. The result seems to be already predetermined. So let's start again. And let's begin with a minimalist perspective, which reads the words in verse 1 as though they only contribute a bare minimum of meaning. At minimum, the nouns in verse 1 form some kind of heading, which introduces at least the following 16 verses, which trace a genealogy from Abraham to Jesus, or more specifically from Abraham to David to exile to Jesus Christos. So verse 1 can at least be read as the genealogy of Jesus Christos, son of David, son of Abraham. Notice that there are three descriptors used of Jesus in verse 1, and each of these appears again in the genealogy over the next 16 verses, but they appear in reverse order. So whilst Jesus in verse 1 is said to be Christos, descendant of David, descendant of Abraham, in the genealogy, Abraham comes first, then David, then finally Jesus, the one called Christos. This inversion of the order is significant. It appears to be deliberate. It ties the genealogy with the heading. It's perhaps the most significant reason why translators keep interpreting the heading as a genealogical heading. Verse 1 mentions Christos, David, and finishes with Abraham. And in verse 2, the first word is Abraham, who produces a lineage leading to David, producing a lineage eventually leading to the Christos. So the second half of verse 1 finds its completion in verse 16, the one called Christos. This is a strong argument for thinking that the heading of verse 1 is a heading for the first 16 verses. But one of the side effects of this interpretation is that it doesn't give enough emphasis to the meaning of the first word. It de-emphasizes the meaning of the first word so that it can be eliminated. It's basically redundant. The kind of book is less significant, more like a notebook, a record book, a list, an inventory. So Biblos is limited by the meaning of the word Genesis, which is being limited by the meaning of the first 16 verses. So verse 1 is simply the genealogy of Jesus Christos, son of David, son of Abraham. This is exactly what is outlined in verses 2 to 16. So what's happening here is that we have to assume that Biblos is being reduced by the second word Genesis, and then the, the genealogy is reducing the meaning of the word Genesis. This explains how so many English translators arrive at the conclusion that book of Genesis is not necessarily alluding to the first book of the Bible, or the lineage of the first human, or it's best not to emphasize the allusion. It's not a significant feature of Matthew verse 1. It's just a coincidental feature. 
Basically, we can blame the genealogy for determining the meaning of the first two words. If it weren't for the genealogy in verses 2 to 17, no translator would translate the word Genesis as genealogy. What we can conclude from all this is that the interpretation of the genealogy is playing a major role in the interpretation of verse 1. Of course, this doesn't mean that we have to exclude other possible meanings. If the writer wanted to exclude other meanings, there are other less ambiguous words to use that mean genealogy. The word Genesis is not the word usually used for genealogy elsewhere in the New Testament. The advantage of a minimal reading is that it gives a good starting point from which to begin our interpretation of the nature of Jesus' Genesis, the Christos, whose derivation is from David and from Abraham. But we don't need to restrict our interpretation of his Genesis as derivation, as if there's nothing else to say, as if derivation fully explains the nature of Jesus' Genesis. The minimal interpretation is good in that it gives us a surface meaning. If we want to go below the surface, then we will find that a minimal interpretation is insufficient to fully explain the text. As you've probably guessed, I have some difficulties with the minimal interpretation. It does join itself quite well to the genealogy. They are joined together, and that's the advantage of the minimal interpretation. But it's also the disadvantage of the minimal interpretation, because it makes verse 1 almost redundant. I've even heard it said that Matthew begins with a genealogy, which seems to overlook the significance of what's going on in verse 1. If verse 1 is a heading for the whole book, we might seem a bit disappointed that Christos, son of David, son of Abraham, doesn't properly define who Jesus is according to the whole book. But the more we look at it, the more we find that these three labels, these three names, are quite important throughout the book. We only find out what Christos really means by reading the whole book. Likewise, we find out more about what son of David means, according to Matthew, as we read through the book. The name son of Abraham doesn't appear, but the name Abraham does appear a few times throughout Matthew. So, yes, verse 1 does seem to be tied with the genealogy quite well, but verse 1 also corresponds quite well to the following paragraph after the genealogy, and the next few paragraphs, and the next few. Another problem with the minimal interpretation is that it reduces the meaning of the first word, biblos. Often our interpretation begins with the second word, Genesis. But our interpretation of this is shaped by how we define the very first word, biblos. The biblos that belongs to Genesis. The biblos genesios. We often underestimate the meaning and significance of the word biblos. Biblos is literally papyrus, but it really refers to what's written on the papyrus. It's not about the material written on, but about the content of what's written. Somewhat similar to how we might say, I've written a paper, or I've presented a paper. We don't think, I've produced a sheet of blank paper, 
we mean I've composed an essay of some sort. So I'm going to try and explain the meaning and significance of the word Biblos. Not to be confused with the word Biblion, which is a different word. Here I'm only talking about the word Biblos. There are two aspects to Biblos that I think it's easy to lose sight of. We no longer tend to think of writing as something special. We've almost completely lost the earlier idea of the aura of the distinction and mystery surrounding the nature of writing. Not just because most people could not write, and because writing was such a privilege, such a prestigious activity, but also because the end result of a composition was often a mysterious and enchanting thing. A written composition provided access to something beyond itself. We tend nowadays to think of a piece of writing as something very mundane. There are two aspects of writing that are relevant to Biblos. The intentional aspect and the divine aspect. Both are combined together in what is Biblos. We've lost sight of the sacred aspect of Biblos. The intentional aspect is quite easy to understand. A Biblos represents something with a greater purpose. It expresses a, a particular goal. That particular goal, that intentional aspect, is part and parcel of what we call the text, or what in Matthew's time is called Biblos. But whenever Biblos is used elsewhere in the New Testament, it refers to something about the purposes of the divine, God's intentions, whether the Biblos of Moses or the Biblos of the words of the prophet Isaiah, even the book of Psalms was read as a book of instructions relating to the divine will, according to Peter's speech in Acts chapter 1, verse 20. A Biblos informed its readers, not merely of trivial facts, a Biblos informed its readers of how to connect with matters of spiritual significance, how to discover God's purposes, how to discern the divine will, a Biblos apparently contained intentions of the divine. So even if we try to take a minimal reading of Biblos Genesios, meaning a list of written ancestry, a genealogical list, the implication is still there that Biblos Genesios presents a sacred list of ancestry with special significance, with divine purpose. Even if we don't interpret Biblos as a book, Biblos still implies a sacred list with divine purpose. So the implication is that Biblos in verse 1 provides something with a sacred purpose, whether it's referring only to a sacred genealogy, or whether it means a book and refers to a sacred story about Jesus' whole life. Basically, if we want to label our interpretation of Biblos Genesios as minimal, we don't end up with a mere genealogical list. At minimum, we actually end up with a providentially written list, a genealogical account with a divine agenda. In other words, Biblos Genesios is an account that discerns a divinely shaped genealogy. And this partially explains the mysterious shape of the genealogy which I'll be talking about next episode. So even if we don't interpret Biblos as book or story, 
we are still left with Byblos as at least indicating something sacred and providentially significant, or providentially discerned. Either way, it's really the providential genesis of Jesus. Whether we think of the providential genesis as the genealogy of Jesus, or whether we think of it in a more expanded sense as the story of Jesus. Either way, it's a genesis which is apparently shaped by divine intentions. So it's apparently the divinely guided genesis of Jesus. But the genealogy is only one exposition. It is the first of many expositions that illuminate or explain the meaning and significance of verse 1. And I think this is perhaps what commentators like Allison are trying to say when they say that the meaning of verse 1 is telescopic. Verse 1 applies to the genealogy, as well as the birth report, as well as the infancy stories, as well as the public ministry and the whole life of Jesus. I haven't said much in this episode in relation to masculinity. I should point out that the beginning of this ancient book sounds like it's going to be about men, in particular Jesus as a first century man. It's easy to get the impression that verse 1 initially sounds like the figure of Jesus is a high-ranking figure from a, a royal lineage, but this grandiose heading conceals a different story. It sounds like Jesus is going to be held up as an example of typical masculinity. Verse 1 conceals a more nuanced story of Jesus's masculinity and femininity. So we should be prepared that the assumptions and impressions that arise from verse 1 are assumptions being set up in order to question these assumptions as the book progresses. Verse 1 sets up expectations that Jesus is male. It uses masculine nouns for Christos and Jesus. In this way, verse 1 sets the tone of the whole book as a story about a man told in relation to other men. So verse 1 seems to presume a masculine story, a story of a leader for people to follow, a public figure, which whether such a figure has to be masculine is not at all obvious from a modern perspective. And we will see some non-conventional traits about this man as we go through the book. So verse 1 potentially perpetuates stereotypes of gender roles. Jesus is a leader, so therefore he must be a man to be the Christos. This is an assumption that needs to be questioned, and I think the book does question a lot of the masculine traits expected of the Christos. Verse 1 presumes that the three titles given to Jesus are honourable titles. It probably presumes that people would revere these titles, people would revere David and revere Abraham. So the identity of Jesus in verse 1 depends on the identity of David and of Abraham. This is not an individualistic Jesus. This is not the story of Jesus the individual. The book is saying the identity of Jesus is bound up with David and with Abraham. 
So this is different for me coming from an individualistic society where identity is very isolated. But here we have identity as interconnected with others. So the second half of verse 1 reminds me that identity is not individualistic here. The identity of Jesus depends on David and Abraham. This doesn't mean that verse 1 is irredeemably masculine. It suggests to me that my modern Western idea of independent identity is not something that I can naturally impose on the world of the text. The world of the text seems to assume and value interdependence. It assumes that identities are not isolated, but interrelational. And so it encourages me to see everyone and everything as interconnected. What are these three categories, these three names? Does Jesus fulfill the kind of son of David, the kind of Christos that's expected? No, he doesn't take up political power over the Romans. So the kind of Christos that Jesus is, is something that we will have to wait to see as we go through the book. It's interesting to compare the first verse of the book of Mark with the first verse of the book of Matthew. Because Matthew seems to be avoiding the Roman imperial overtones of Mark's beginning, which begins with, The beginning of the evangel of Jesus Christos, Son of God, which sounds quite reminiscent of Roman imperial propaganda. If the first verse in Matthew is avoiding the whole idea of sounding like Roman propaganda, what is it trying to sound like? It's trying to identify Jesus. And we keep coming back to this idea of identifying Jesus. What is the identity of Jesus? I should also point out that there's an issue with taking the genesis of Jesus as though it must only be about his ancestry. A biblical genealogy is normally named after the first ancestor. So just as the genealogy of the first human is named after the first ancestor in Genesis chapter 5 verse 1, or the lineage of Noah in Genesis chapter 10 verse 1. We would expect that the genealogy in Matthew should be called the genealogy of Abraham, because Abraham is the first ancestor in the list. But in Matthew, the heading is apparently named after the final descendant rather than the first ancestor. This is very interesting, because verse 1 almost names the heading after Abraham, it almost refers to the ancestry as Abraham's lineage. Abraham is included within the string of names, or string of nouns. So according to the heading, it is about Abraham's lineage. Jesus' origin derives from Abraham. Perhaps then, the genesis of Jesus is being co-named with Abraham and with David, providing the one and the same sacred book the story begun ultimately with Abraham. Now the reversal of names that happens in verse 1 is also significant not only because it links verse 1 with the genealogy, but because a reversal of naming is also apparent in whose genesis it is. The reversal of names in verse 1 
might also reflect the reversal of whose genesis is expected. We might initially expect that genesis of Jesus would refer to a lineage produced from Jesus. We are immediately are informed that it's really a lineage produced from Abraham. Craig Keener has an interesting interpretation of why verse 1 says it's the genesis of Jesus and why it does not say genesis of Abraham. Verse 1 is saying that Jesus' ancestry derives its name and significance from himself. What Keener is saying is that Jesus' ancestors are actually dependent on Jesus himself. Since God already planned to send the Messiah, the Messiah's ancestors depend on him for their significance. Keener says, So much is Jesus the focal point of history that his ancestors depend on him for their meaning. What this interpretation shows us is that Keener is trying to solve a problem that arises when we assume that the genesis of Jesus must be limited to the genealogy. If we limit the genesis of Jesus to a genealogical meaning, we have additional problems such as the one Keener is trying to solve. In other words, the problem arises of how Jesus' lineage is not about his descendants. And true, Jesus' lineage is not about his biological descendants, because that's one thing that stands out in the book of the life of Jesus. He is not interested in producing descendants of that kind. In fact, this could be the point of the book, the fact that Jesus is not interested in maintaining a genealogy of that kind. This is something we'll pick up in future episodes as we work through the book. This leads me to mention the interpretation of Davies and Allison. They suggest in their commentary that Genesis of Jesus here refers to the new kind of Genesis that Jesus brought about, or wrought, or shaped, or built. They translate verse 1 as book of the new Genesis wrought by Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. This interpretation has not been widely accepted, but it does at least draw attention to the difficulty of trying to make sense of verse 1. It calls our attention to the point that perhaps Genesis of Jesus is about the results or effects produced by Jesus and his life. The more that I study verse 1, the more I'm inclined to see the value of the interpretation given by Davies and Allison. That it's about not just what leads up to Jesus, but it's about what comes forth from Jesus. Not just what precedes Jesus, but what proceeds from Jesus as well. And one of the reasons why I'm coming to this conclusion more and more is noting how the word Genesis is used in other books. For example, in the book of Judith, as it gets towards the climactic moment where she's about to destroy the bad king, she speaks of this coming moment as her genesis, as if she's entering the pinnacle of her life. Her whole life, she feels, is about this moment in time. Not just everything leading up to this moment, but her whole genesis, her whole life, So this is one example of when we look at how Genesis is used in other books, it's not just limited necessarily to one direction, to what's leading up or what's coming from, but it can move in both directions. It can stretch to what comes before and leading up to, as well as what keeps going 
as well as the trajectory. It can mean cause and effect. And it makes sense that someone's life naturally spans in both directions. It's simultaneously a continuation of one's roots. A person is a continuation of their parentage and what we now call genes and genetics. And at the same time, a human life has something unique to contribute to the world. A unique combination of abilities and perspectives that combine, hopefully, into finding purpose in life. A meaningful life has both heritage to draw from and a purpose driving it forward. It is linked in both directions. And even when a life is over, it is never really over because it leaves a legacy. A legacy that can be traced beyond itself in both directions. Perhaps what's going on in verse 1 of Matthew is similar to verse 1 of the Gospel according to John. When the Gospel according to John starts in the beginning, this is not only echoing the first verse of Genesis, it echoes the name of the book of Genesis according to its Hebrew name. The first book of the Bible was also known as in the beginning according to its Hebrew name. That is, according to its compositional incipit. Almost no one misses this echo in the opening words of Genesis when they appear in the Gospel according to John. When the first verse of John starts with, In the beginning, interpreters don't take this as merely coincidental. Instead, they take it that John 1 verse 1 is intending to echo the opening words of the Bible. Is it coincidental that the opening words of John and the opening words of Matthew each echo the name of the first book of the Bible. It seems that by echoing the name of the book of Genesis, according to its Greek name, that that's something that's similar to what's happening in the fourth gospel, which echoes the name of the book of Genesis according to its Hebrew name. This does make me wonder if the fourth gospel got the idea of evoking the book of Genesis by reading the way Matthew begins. Anyway, the point is that the first pair of words in Matthew evokes the first book, Genesis, the very beginning of God's creating the heavens and the earth and humanity, recalling God's creating of humankind and imparting humans with the ability to reproduce after their own kind. Greek readers don't miss the allusion to the book of Genesis in the opening phrase of Matthew. To summarise so far, verse 1 is difficult. It's a verse composed only of eight nouns, four of them names, if we include Christos as an honorific name or title of some sort. Verse 1 depends on our prior knowledge that Biblos Genesios is evocative of Scripture. It's a biblical phrase that recalls either the first book of the Bible or the lineage produced from the first human. But it immediately challenges our expectations by reversing the naming of the Genesis. It's not just Abraham's Genesis. It's not the Genesis produced from Abraham, but it's apparently the Genesis of Jesus. Whatever the Genesis of Jesus means, whatever it means, it seems to be deliberately ambiguous. Now, all this talk about the ambiguity of the word Genesis in verse 1, can't we just open up a Greek dictionary and look up the meaning of the word Genesis? Well, that's a good idea. 
How about we begin with the standard New Testament dictionary, the Bauer-Danker lexicon. Here we are given two suggested meanings for the word Genesis in Matthew verse 1. The first meaning supposes that verse 1 introduces a story or history of the life of Jesus. But they say if the phrase book of Genesis applies only to the following 16 verses, then the suggested meaning is lineage or family line, the persons of successive generations forming an ancestral line. So the Bauerdanker lexicon outlines the two main options, but it does not do all the exegetical work for us in deciding between these two options. Actually, there are more than two options in between, as we've seen. I've explained the minimalist interpretation of the first two words, and I should also explain how the minimalist interpretation reads the entire verse. It focuses only on the middle two pairs. Jesus Christos, son of David. It acknowledges that calling Jesus Christos indicates that Jesus is being designated as the Christos, that is, the one anointed to function in an official religious capacity, usually a priest, prophet or king, but most likely it's a kingly title here. In other words, Jesus is said to be the one commissioned or the one chosen to act as the messianic king. The following pair of words, son of David, are then meant to re-emphasize Jesus as rightful king, because son of David is used elsewhere in Matthew as a messianic kind of label. But in the context of verse 1, the meaning of son of David is determined by a genealogical meaning. Son of David means descended from David. But since David was a king, and is called David the king in verse 6, then it's difficult to exclude the meaning descended from King David, or heir of David, as demonstrated by the genealogy. So in the minimalist interpretation, we could underline the middle two pairs of words, or we could draw one circle around these four words, around Jesus Christos, son of David. This way we would visually represent what's going on in the minimalist interpretation. Audibly, we could represent this as the book of the Genesis, of Jesus Christos, son of David, son of Abraham. The middle two pairs of words are in focus as the most important names of Jesus, mainly as genealogical names or labels. And these labels launch the reader into Jesus' ancestry. One important aspect of a minimal interpretation is that by focusing on the middle two pairs of nouns, by focusing on Jesus Christos, son of David, and by minimizing the interpretation of book of Genesis and son of Abraham. And by doing this, it, it shows us, yes, Jesus Christos, son of David, is significant, and it does seem to be the end point of the genealogy. But in terms of structure, it shows us something about the bits that are left off. The first and fourth pair of nouns, book of Genesis, son of Abraham, Notice how these correspond. The book of Genesis is mainly about the son of Abraham. How Abraham gets to having a son, an heir. This is perhaps one of the main points of the book of Genesis. So we would call this structure chiastic. A-B-B-A. -B -B -A. 
So who's to say that the A's are less significant than the B's? Book of Genesis, son of Abraham, is perhaps just as significant as the middle two pairs. So we can thank the minimal reading for showing us something about the structure of verse 1. Unfortunately, a minimal reading avoids having to confront the problem of the relationship between the third word pair and the fourth word pair. If the main point is to say that Jesus is the Davidic Messiah, heir to the throne of David, it seems completely unnecessary to go back any further than David. If the Messiah is meant to be a king from the line of David, then why go any further back than David? Why mention that David derives his lineage from Abraham? Tracing David back to Abraham would usually be a way of suggesting that Abraham is the greater ancestor. This is a problem for a minimal interpretation which avoids the issue. It doesn't confront the issue. It, it doesn't attempt to answer why being a descendant of Abraham would be mentioned in verse 1. And how can a descendant be considered greater than his ancestor? A minimalist interpretation seems to assume that the main point is that Jesus is heir to the throne of David. But a minimalist interpretation would work better if the heading stopped at David and the genealogy began with David. We would expect to stop at the most significant ancestor. Perhaps David could surpass the greatness of Abraham? The idea that a descendant could surpass his ancestor in greatness was unusual. It's not impossible. But it is precisely why John the Baptizer needs to explain that Jesus is the greater one, despite the fact that the greater one actually comes afterwards. Even though he, he is chronologically after John, he is actually greater than John. The fourth gospel resolves the problem by explaining that Jesus can be greater than John because Jesus existed prior to John. Jesus pre-exists John in the fourth gospel. So the same logic is assumed that one cannot be greater than one's ancestor. The natural implication of going back further than David, back to David's ancestor, is that David's greatness, David's honour, is derivative of Abraham, the senior ancestor. How then can son of David be the main point of verse 1? Some of our oldest surviving commentaries on Matthew raise a similar question. Some of them ask, why does the book of Matthew put David before Abraham in verse 1? Because as we've seen, ancient readers would expect Matthew to put son of Abraham before son of David, simply because Abraham is prior to David. Not only chronologically prior, but theologically prior or senior. Perhaps the main point of verse 1 then is not that Jesus is the Davidic Messiah, or perhaps son of David defers to the phrase son of Abraham. Perhaps the point about Abraham should not be minimized. How then does a minimalist interpretation understand son of Abraham in verse 1? It basically views it as a label that means Jew. This is obviously true in a minimal sense, though not every son of Abraham is a Jew, because Abraham is also the ancestor of other people groups. But 
yes, within the context of being David's ancestor, then yes, son of Abraham does at minimum indicate Jewish or Hebrew. A slightly more than minimal interpretation of son of Abraham is the idea that yes, Abraham is significant as the first Jew, the first Hebrew, the progenitor of the Israelites, the Hebrews. But furthermore, the significance lies in what it means for someone to identify as son of Abraham. Namely, as someone belonging to a group of people who have been called into covenant with God. Someone joined to an ancient tradition of practices within a community that sees itself as a continuation of what Abraham was called to become seeing Abraham as not merely an ancestor, but as ancestor in relationship with the divine. Son of Abraham might then not be about Abraham, but about God. God's initiating of a covenant people. Abraham is then significant because of God, because of being chosen by God. The God who calls Abraham makes a covenant with Abraham and with the descendants of Abraham. What it meant to be called son of Abraham, then, signifies not just ethnicity, but the idea of inheriting the status of being in a covenantal relationship, called into relationship with God, just as Abraham was called and chosen by God. So in this interpretation, son of Abraham means more than simply Jewish, but all that is entailed by Jewish identity. In terms of reading verse 1 genealogically, it's problematic also because on first reading, neither of the labels son of David or son of Abraham are genealogical. Neither of them are describing Jesus' father. Neither David nor Abraham were names used in Judea at that time, as far as I know. So at that time, there's still only one David and one Abraham. The mention of these names recall names from Israel's history. Son of David, son of Abraham seems to be labels Davidic and Abrahamic, someone who comes with the qualities or job title of continuing the mission of David and or Abraham. And this is why I like the word commissioned, as a translation for Christos, because co-missioned sounds like it's a joint mission, activated not by one person, but jointly, activated by the one who commissions and by the one who receives the mission, and in this case, as a continuation of the mission begun with Abraham. I also like the word chosen, or chosen one, as a translation for Christos, because it shows that the role of the Christos is divinely chosen just like Abraham was chosen, and just like David was chosen. It's not a birthright, which we might think if we read the following genealogy too hastily. The role of Christos is chosen by God. God chooses all three figures according to what God intends to make. In other words, they are each chosen based on their cooperative potential as agents who are cooperating with God and with what God is trying to create. So it's probably not a good idea to let our interpretation of verse 1 be dominated by the genealogy. If we read verse 1 as dominated by the genealogy, then we might begin to think that the labels, all three 
labels are merely genetic, as though these labels are the birthright of Jesus. If we say that son of David, or son of Abraham, is a genealogical descriptor, we are probably letting the genealogy dominate our interpretation. Instead, we need to recognize that these son of labels are titles that are ambiguous, and they needn't be particularly genealogical at all. In fact, until verse 2 begins, they seem like job titles, job descriptors. Because if someone is being called son of David or son of Abraham, it's really because of what they do. It's because of what that person is doing, primarily, especially within the context of the book of Matthew, where everyone that Jesus interacts with basically couldn't be called son of Abraham. These labels don't make much sense as biological labels. Hereditary labels, yes, but hereditary because of job function, not birthright. This is why I'm saying that a genealogical interpretation of verse 1 is not just a minimal interpretation, it's really a minimized interpretation. Especially since the meaning of Christos is not primarily about genetic biology, according to the book of Matthew. Yes, we could say the meaning of Christos is something genetic in that it has ties with the past. It is clearly tied to what has gone before. But biological genetics is not even the point of the genealogy in the following verses. So we will probably misunderstand the genealogy if we can't see that. And that's what I'll begin looking at next episode. Now, there are other options as well. Once we get beyond a minimal reading, we move into typological readings. Jesus could be a type of David, or a type of Abraham, or a type of David's son Solomon, a type of Solomon, or a type of Abraham's son Isaac, a type of Isaac. The typological readings have advantages to them because, yes, Jesus does appear to be both a type of David and a type of Solomon and a type of Abraham and a type of Isaac. So which ones are most which ones are more important? Does son of mean a type of or is it more literal in terms of David's son Solomon and Abraham's son Isaac? Well it's still it's still typological in either case. Typological readings do interest me, but they lead in so many directions. Abraham is renowned for so many things in the first century. He's known as the first monotheist, the person who rejects idolatry. He's known as a prophet. He's known to be the first Jewish convert. He's known to be a healer. He's known to be a mediator of the divine. He's known as a migrant. Abraham's known to be an astrologer. There are so many things that Abraham is known for. He's known as the bringer of sciences, especially astrology. He's known as the first of many kinds of things. So the typology of Abraham is quite multifaceted and we could follow it down many lines of interpretation. For example, Abraham as an astrologer. It might sound surprising. 
But even amongst Gentiles, even amongst non-Jewish people, they had heard the name Abraham. And so non-Jewish astrologers knew that Abraham had brought astrology, especially in regards to migration. So if a person's birth was thought to be significant for living in a different place, so the destiny of that child was to be in another country, another place, they thought Abraham had taught about that kind of astrological information. So every time I go to put astrology out of my mind, I think, why would verse 1 be interested in astrology? But then I remember the first verse of chapter 2, we have astrologers appear on the scene who recognize the destiny of this child is to become king of the Jews. So one of the meanings of Genesis is an astrological meaning. It's the meaning destiny. But this this separates us from, from the third pair and fourth pair of nouns. There seems to be an important relationship between son of David and son of Abraham. So I find it more valuable to think about what's in common. If we go too far into all the things that Abraham is renowned for, and we find that none of them seem to apply to David, perhaps this is too far-fetched. Perhaps what's in common to David and Abraham is more likely to be the point of verse 1. The idea that what's in common between David and Abraham is picked up in the commentary by Davies and Allison, but barely. They, they don't quite follow up the idea, but they do say, given Matthew's emphasis on righteousness and upholding the Torah, the mention of Abraham is particularly apt. They then go on to mention an ancient idea that Abraham kept the teachings of the Torah, even before the Torah was given to Israel through Moses. That's not the bit that I find fascinating. What I find most interesting is the first bit about taking notice of Matthew's emphasis on righteousness. Okay, if we ask what was special about Abraham, we we don't get a clear idea in Genesis, but we get a hint. Genesis is not clear why God wanted to choose Abraham, probably not based on anything Abraham's previously done. So it it's more likely to be something that God could see potential in Abraham for for creating something new. If we read Genesis 18 verses 17 to 19, we do have one suggestion for what's going on. So Genesis doesn't give a clear reason for God's choice. In fact, that seems to be the point. The real reason is probably that God is supposed to be seen as the one to make the choice to create a new people, a people who will share the credit with God for being God's people rather than take full credit themselves. But Genesis does point to one suggestion, that God's decision was related to Abraham's willingness to begin a tradition of handing down God's commandments. Abraham could be trusted to begin the process of instructing his children and his household, who in turn will teach their children and households, to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring about for Abraham what he has promised him and his descendants. What stands out here is the expression to perform righteousness and justice, or to enact righteousness and justice. Now this expression was apparently a common political expression in the ancient Near East, used when speaking about the implementation of social justice 
in particular for describing what a good king is expected to do. Ideally, a good king should be able to implement righteousness and justice. This social justice, something for which the leader of a society was responsible for enacting, this social justice is being linked back to Abraham. Abraham here is being linked with what Richard G. Smith calls the royal agenda. He is linked with what a good king does. Which is not surprising because Abraham has just been told that from his descendants kings will arise. And there are certain aspects to the text which seem to present Abraham like a king. Especially in first century interpretations of the text. So we might expect then that a descendant of Abraham will take up the task. In particular, a king will pick up this task. And yes, we are told that the king who takes up this task is David. In Second Samuel 8.15, David is said to have begun to establish righteousness and justice. Well, it appears to be a slow process. It seems to have taken some time to begin to develop or begin to come to fruition. And it's not even clear whether David fulfills the expectation of this task fully, to fully implement righteousness and justice. Instead, it seems that David only begun to implement righteousness and justice. Now we might think, oh, well, it's begun in kernel form in Abraham, and then it's begun in larger form with David, and then Jesus will fulfill it. Well, this is well, this is to ignore that Solomon was thought to fulfill all of the promises. It's difficult to see any promises that David's son Solomon left unfulfilled, because Solomon is portrayed as fulfilling all the promises made to Abraham in terms of descendants and autonomous rule in the land, even being a blessing to other nations. If we look at the book of Kings, for example, 1 Kings 10.24 says that the whole world sought audience with Solomon for his wisdom. So the book of Kings shows Solomon as the fulfillment of the covenant made with Abraham in having numerous Israelites, wide geographical boundaries, and blessings that come to the Gentiles because of their interaction with Solomon. This opens up further problems because Jesus doesn't take up the task in the same political manner that David did, unless we spiritualize the promise. What about the promise of many descendants? Jesus does not come to fulfill that one. And the promise of inheriting the land that's something that's reinterpreted in Matthew in a new way. So there's always going to be a problem in trying to understand the relationship between the third and fourth pairs of words in verse 1. How do we understand the relationship between son of David and son of Abraham? It opens up a whole bunch of questions. The way that I've been solving the relationship between son of David, son of Abraham, is to look at what's in common between David and Abraham, according to the phrase, doing righteousness and justice. And that's a phrase about kingdom, and a phrase about a king. The idea that Jesus is a king in verse 1 is almost correct. Jesus can't be a king without a kingdom. It's just as much about kingdom and the kingdom that the Christos inherits is an older kingdom. There are new aspects as well, but it's 
a revived kingdom. It's being portrayed as the revival of an ancient kingdom. This reminds me of when I think I've discovered something new, or a new way of doing something, or a new idea, and then later on I find out, no, that's not a new idea at all. Perhaps this is what's happening in the first verse of Matthew. The tension between old and new is something that, that is dealt with in interesting ways throughout the book of Matthew. If we think about people who have heard things about Jesus in the first century, and some of it would sound quite new and quite radical, quite disconnected from older ways of thinking. And verse 1 is saying, well, not everything you've heard is as new and radical as you think. Some of this goes way back. Likewise, when we think of the combination of names, Jesus is a common name in the first century, and this common name, Jesus, is being linked with older names, with names from ancient times, Abraham and David. So first-time readers will be hearing this new and old, a new name from the present being linked with the past. It's instructive to notice what verse 1 does not say. Verse 1 does not say Jesus is Son of God, as it apparently does in the first verse of Mark, according to many texts. Verse 1 does not say this is the gospel of Jesus, as it does in the first verse of Mark. Verse 1 of Matthew does not begin with Jesus' divinity, as it does in the first verse, apparently, in, in the book of John. Verse 1 of Matthew does not even say Jesus is the son of a father. It not, doesn't say Jesus is the son of Joseph. It doesn't identify Jesus' father. If it were a genealogical verse, we would expect the name of Jesus' father. Instead, verse 1 of Matthew says, Son of David, son of Abraham. This combination of David and Abraham is interesting. Jesus is identified as Christos, the one anointed or appointed to be chosen as the heir of David, heir of Abraham, whatever that means. Possibly it's saying that the son of David is heir of Abraham. And indeed, David's son Solomon was thought to be the ultimate heir of Abraham in the way that he fulfilled promises to Abraham. And we find out later in the book of Matthew that something greater even than Solomon is underway. So it's probably indicating that the identity of Jesus is dependent on David and Abraham, and saying that all three figures are interdependent. All three figures represent God's intentions to create something. God's choice of David helps to give shape to what was intended in God's choice in calling Abraham. Likewise, the Christos is chosen to bring about the kingdom derived from the highest authority in what the book of Matthew calls heaven's kingdom, to bring about the kingdom established since before the foundation of the world, to quote Matthew chapter 25 verse 34. In conclusion, verse 1 is an interesting heading. It seems to apply to more than just the genealogy. I tried to show how it is tempting to read verse 1 according to the genealogy, 
rather than reading it according to the whole book. I think the biggest oversight happens when we interpret verse 1 as being about the genesis of Jesus the individual. Verse 1 doesn't say it's the genesis of Jesus. It says that it's the genesis of Jesus Christos, heir of David, heir of Abraham. Notice what the genesis is of. What's being brought about or shaped or given definition here is not an individual but a corporal identity. It seems to be introducing the story of the Christos as an inherited story, a story inherited from Abraham, that which was begun with Abraham and begun with David. What's being given definition is apparently corporate. It seems to be defining something greater than one individual. It's not the story of one individual. It's telling the story of Jesus as Israel's story. Now, do we presume that the writer of the book of Matthew was Jewish? It seems to me that the writer views Gentiles, non-Jews, as those coming from beyond his own group. It seems to me that the writer is not hijacking another group's story. It is his own heritage of which he writes. From what I can see so far in the book, verse 1 is not about birthrights of the Christos. Instead, it's about the Christos as inheritor of the role to instruct others about the divine intention, living according to justice and righteousness. This is what God intended to begin, according to the book of Genesis, with Abraham. And this is what David began to establish, according to the book of Samuel. So I don't think it's accurate to say that verse 1 is about Jesus and his ancestral right to kingship. It's not really about the emergence of Jesus, but the re-emergence of the same thing begun with Abraham and with David, namely, a chosen leader who works towards putting into action the creation of that space which in Matthew is called Heaven's Kingdom. The Christos is the one chosen to teach others about that kingdom and to lead others into that space. That's the end of this episode. Thank you for listening. 